Welcome to the North Shore Church audio podcast. To find out more information about North Shore Church, please visit us at mynsag.com. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to uh, Matthew chapter 26. We'll get there in just a moment. Matthew chapter 26. This last week, uh, I think Monday night, our family was just sitting around in the living room. We were watching TV, and we were watching The Voice. Anybody, any fans of The Voice? You know what The Voice is. Um, basically, what The Voice is, is it's a singing competition. There's a lot of singing competitions out right now, but, but what they do, they do something kind of unique at the beginning where they do these blind auditions where the contestant comes out for, 30 or for 90 seconds and they sing their solo, and the coaches, they are sitting in chairs that are facing away from the person. So their back is to the person singing, and if they like what they hear, and if they want to choose that person to be on their team, they hit their button, and the chair spins, and everybody cheers, and and they get a chance to choose um, whatever coach that they want, depending on how many people uh, spin around. And we're sitting there watching it and having a good time, and I asked my family, I said, if I worked really, really hard on one song, Like all year, I just practiced and practiced this one song and got really good at this one song and got up there and sang for 90 seconds. Do you think I could get at least one judge to hit their button, spin around, and choose me? And look, I'm not a very good singer. I'm just not. It's Count yourself blessed that I'm not mic'd when we sing, okay? Several years ago, we were singing during worship one day, and I was standing next to Melissa, and I was singing, I was giving it my all, and uh, she elbowed me, and she said, Chris, stop messing around. And like, I wasn't, okay? (laughs) She thought I was just like, for, for whatever. But I was, I told her, I said, Look, I'm worshiping my king here. This is the best I got. And, uh, and she said, oh, I'm sorry. But that's how bad I am. And so I was asking the kids if they thought I could do it. And, you know, there was mixed reviews and stuff. And so I, I practiced. I made the kids turn around. I said, okay, everybody turn around. And I stood up there in the middle of the, the living room there. And I gave it my all, man. I belted out a whole new world from Aladdin. And, and it was awesome. <laughs> I nailed it. I got two kids to turn early, and the others, I couldn't get them to budge. And so the end, toward the end of the song, like they do on the, the voice, I started pressing a little bit, started doing some runs, you know, like that, to really show my range and stuff like that. And I couldn't get them to turn. I think they were just being stubborn. But, uh, but we had a good time. Titus turned around. He said, I want you on my team, Dad. You can be on my team. And, and uh, so I was set. And Lydia, she's the other one who turned around. She just turned around to tell me that I was horrible. And, and it's hurt my feelings a little bit, but uh, we had a good time. That's just such a fun show to watch because those people get up there and they have such bravery and such courage. They're standing there in front of not just the four celebrity judges, which that would be nerve-wracking enough, but in front of the, the whole audience and in the whole world really and they're just putting themselves out there and 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 I love that they're willing to take the stage alone and for 90 seconds give it their all rejection is a very real possibility it's it's very possible that they get out there and they they give it their all and the four judges say not good enough and and they have this moment of failure in front of everybody um It's just an interesting concept to see people willing to be able to go out there in front of everybody and do that. 
As I think about the church and I think about the believers in the church, I think about our efforts to love Jesus and exemplify Christ in everything that we say and do, it saddens me to see believers who are afraid to stand out. It saddens me to see believers who are afraid to be judged. It saddens me to see believers that hide in the crowd because they fear the possibility of rejection. I think it's time for men and women, for the men and women of God to stand up and stand out. It's time for believers to stand up and say, look, I am ready for my solo. Turn to the person sitting next to you and say, I'm ready for my solo. <laughs> and we have a microphone, actually, so I'm just teasing. Leading up to Easter, we're preaching a series that we're calling Snapshots, and we're looking at these moments, these very iconic snapshot moments in the life of Jesus on the week before the cross. And last week, Pastor Jason talked about the triumphal entry, and that was kind of the snapshot that we were looking at. It was that moment where Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, and there were hundreds of people. The crowds gathered, pressed up against the, the road there, and they were shouting Hosanna. They were waving the palm branches, and they were just declaring the greatness of Jesus, and everybody was celebrating. It was this great big moment, and it was this parade for one person. And last week, Pastor Jason discussed the difference between the eternal and the external and kind of talked about the crowd and, and everything there. And so what we want to do this morning, I want you to have that image of the triumphal entry fresh in your mind this morning as we look at a very different snapshot, but we're going to compare these two in just a moment. So remember this image of the triumphal entry and all of that celebration that, that Jesus received as he came into Jerusalem that day. And now we're going to look at just just a different scene here in Matthew chapter 26, verse 6. It says this, Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment. It was perfume. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why all this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Verse 10. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And this message today, the fact that you are hearing these words today, is a fulfillment of the prophetic words that Jesus declared in that moment. This account, this story, this snapshot is told or retold in every single one of the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament. It's in Matthew 26 here that we're reading. It's in John 12. It's in Luke 7 and Mark 14. And all of them have like a little bit of a different spin. All of them uh, share different, unique details of the story. And so we don't have enough time this morning to read every single account. And so what we're going to do in the remainder of our time as we talk about this snapshot, we're going to pull bits and pieces of information from these other accounts to fill in the details of the story. If you need to fact check them, go back and read those here this afternoon. And so basically this is the scene. This is the snapshot that we have. Jesus is having dinner at a man named Simon's house, and they call him Simon the leper because he, he had leprosy. Um, 
It's very unlikely that Simon at this current time had leprosy, but most believe that Jesus had healed Simon of leprosy at some point earlier in their interaction. Maybe it was a week ago, a year ago, months ago. I don't know. But, but this Simon, uh, a very, apparently a famous man who, who was identified by this disease, Simon the leper, although he wasn't uh, sick at this moment. And so Simon is there at the dinner. And then as you look around the table, you you begin to notice sort of a who's who there of the New Testament. You have Simon, who had uh, famously been healed of his leprosy. You have Lazarus there. Um, and if you don't know who Lazarus was, Lazarus was the guy who had died. They had buried him. He was dead for four days. Four days later, Jesus shows up on the scene. Everybody's crying. Everybody's standing there at the tomb. And basically, Jesus prays a little prayer and says, all right, Lazarus, that's enough being dead. Uh, Come back to life. And Lazarus wakes up out of the grave, and he stumbles out of the tomb, wrapped up like a mummy. And so Lazarus is there. We have Peter sitting there around the table. Peter, the only other person other than Jesus to walk on water. You have James and John sitting around the table who were along with Peter and Jesus went up onto a mountain that we call the Mount of Transfiguration, and they saw the glory of God descend on Jesus. They heard the audible voice of God from heaven talking about Jesus, and they saw Moses, and they were like, man, this is so awesome. Let's build tents and never, ever leave this place. And then you have all the other disciples that have done all the amazing things and seen Jesus do all those other amazing things. Also, Martha was there, and from what we know about other scriptures that we study, Martha was a great host, she was a good cook, and so so this was probably a really good dinner and a really good time. And then this woman shows up, Mary. This isn't Jesus' mother, Mary, it's Martha's sister and Lazarus' sister, Mary. Now, it it appears as as we study and try to piece what we know of Scripture together and do the historical work that this Mary doesn't have the best of reputations. And so she comes in, she interrupts this dinner that they're having with the who's who's of the New Testament, and um, in her hands, she's holding an alabaster box full of very expensive perfume. The cost of this perfume was equivalent to about a year's wage. And so think about that, because you know the story. She dumps it all on Jesus. And so basically, in one moment, in one setting, Mary comes in and she gives about a year's wage offering to Jesus in one setting. You want to know how that feels to you? Just kind of think about how much you make in a year and think about giving that to Jesus all in one shot. That's what Mary is doing. This perfume bottle, it didn't have any sort of fancy spray nozzles or anything, so she didn't just mist him or anything like that. What they would do is they would put this perfume in an alabaster box and they would seal it tight. The only way to access the perfume was to break the box open and you only had like a one-shot dump. You had to pour it all out in one shot. And that's exactly what Mary does when she comes into the dinner. She breaks the box open. She pours the entire contents of the box over Jesus' head, over his body, and over his feet. And as we piece together these other um, 
accounts, we see Mary dropping on the floor at Jesus' feet, and she's weeping in, in worship, in gratitude, in praise, in love, and affection, and admiration. She's weeping at Jesus' feet, and all of this perfume is, is running down his head and, and on his feet, and she is sobbing, gigantic crocodile tears, and they're falling on Jesus' feet, and she's wiping the tears off of his feet with her hair, and it is just this great intimate moment of authentic, real worship. And you can imagine the dinner conversation just came to a screeching halt as she comes in and she does this and the fragrance of the perfume filled the house. That's the snapshot. That's the image that we're looking at. And in this series of snapshots, what we're going to do over the next couple of minutes is I want to compare these two images. I want to compare the triumphal entry with this image of Mary at the feet of Jesus anointing him with oil or with the perfume. I want to look at the difference between the triumphal praise and alabaster worship. And so these two snapshots are similar in a couple of ways. They're similar in the fact that Jesus is the object of praise and affection. Jesus sits at the center. All the focus, all the attention is going on Jesus. They're also similar in the fact that they are prophetic in nature and that they are foreshadowing uh, something even greater than the participants could have known. They're foreshadowing a, a, a king who is victorious and a champion and uh, a God who is worthy to be praised. They're foreshadowing a savior who is going to give his life on the cross and then resurrect miraculously in three days. They're foreshadowing great, great things, but they're different in a couple of ways, and I want to talk about those ways here in just a second. They're, they're different like this. Um, triumphal praise was more about what you can give me. As Jesus was riding in on the donkey, it was more about what you can give me. They were looking at Jesus as a political and military sort of revolutionary Messiah, that he was going to come in, he was going to overthrow the Roman government, he was going to set things right, and as Pastor Jason said last week, make Israel great again. That's what they were looking for. And so as these people were looking at Jesus, they were looking for a champion to come in and take away all of their political and socioeconomical pain and do things really, really right for them. The difference between that and alabaster worship is it's alabaster worship is more what I can give you as opposed to what you can do for me. It's what I can give you. Alabaster worship says, look, I owe you my everything. My best is not even good enough to come close to scratch the surface of what you deserve. So the only thing I can give you is my best. Some scholars believe that Mary was the same woman who was caught in adultery. They believe that it may have been this Mary who the Pharisees grabbed and, and dragged out and threw her at the feet of Jesus and said she was caught in adultery and the law says we have to stone her right now. What do you say, Jesus? And you remember, if, you, if you've read that passage or heard sermons about it, Jesus uh, bent down in the sand. He wrote something in the sand. We don't know what it was. We speculate, but we don't know. And then he stands up and he says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. 
Remember, the Pharisees, they all just kind of dissipated because they didn't have a response to that. And if that is the case, if that is the same Mary, she has already been given by Jesus more than she could ever have asked for. And so her heart and her response is, I could never repay you for what you've done for me, so I give you my absolute best. Look, every single one of us should have that attitude, that same as Mary, because Jesus has already done more for us than we could ever think to ask or we could ever attempt to repay. So what he deserves from us is our absolute best. So our position changes from, God, what can you do for me, to, God, what can I do for you? because you've already done so much. That's the difference. Another difference between uh, uh, triumphal praise is that they praise from a distance. They, th- those, those on the street, they were worshiping with an exit strategy. There was minimal commitment. You think about this. If they were hoping that this Jesus was going to be a political messiah, a military messiah that was going to come in and overthrow the Roman government, then probably the Roman government had some sort of an obligation to put down this uprising. And so what these people were doing as they were uh, a part of the crowd there in the triumphal entry, they were worshiping from a distance. They say, I want to be a part of this, but if things got bad and it caught some heat and the Romans came in to try to stop this, I have a way out. I can get away and I can sort of not be connected with this. I'm just a face in the crowd and nobody's going to find me or identify me. It's an exit strategy. It's minimal commitment. It's kind of like living together without actually being married. It's trying to enjoy all the benefits of sort of a commitment without the real commitment. It's an escape plan. I need to have a way out. Alabaster worship is worship that's up close. It's identified. It's intimate. It says, no matter what happens, I'm all in. For better or worse, I'm in. When things are really, really good, I'm in. When things get bad, I'm not going anywhere. Another difference between triumphal praise and alabaster worship is triumphal praise is you are one of many. You're part of a collective voice. And there's place for that, and that's, that's great, and, and we see the value of that when we are one of many, and we are part of a collective voice. We come and gather on Sundays, and we sing, and our one voice is part of a collective voice, and, and that's awesome. It's great to be a part of something bigger. We have to do that, but the difference between that and alabaster worship is alabaster worship is one out of many, because there comes a time when every single one of you, as a collective voice, have to separate yourself from the collective voice and honor Jesus Christ as my Savior. We have to honor Jesus as my King. And we have to get away from saying, look, he's not just our King, he's my King. And there's a moment where every single one of us have to be willing to stand up solo and say, I choose Jesus. Not just we, not just our church, not just our family, but me, out of the many. Say, yes, me, in my heart, alone, all by myself, will declare Jesus as my Savior and my King. Triumphal praise is identified by those who ran. 
Where were the crowds when Jesus was killed? Where were those people that were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna? Where were those who were saying, he's the son of God when Jesus was hung on the cross? What did they all do? They ran. Alabaster worship is identified by those who remained, those who stood near, those who stayed with Jesus till the very end. Many believe that one of the Marys there at the foot of the cross was the very same Mary that poured the alabaster on Jesus, that weeped at his feet and washed his feet with her tears. That when everybody else ran, when all the crowds ran, when all the disciples except one ran, when everybody who said they would follow him to the end ran, there remained the alabaster worship. Triumphal praise is safe. In triumphal praise, you can hide in the crowd. Let's see what the crowd does. Let's see how the crowd responds. What's the consensus of the people? How is the majority? How is the mob voting? What are they saying? What are they deciding? Alabaster worship is a little bit more risky. It says, I don't care what the crowd says. I don't care how the crowd responds. The conviction of the Holy Spirit inside my heart has revealed who Jesus Christ is, and I will worship him. I will follow him. I will love him. I will declare his praises. I will declare his excellencies, and he will determine what I say, think, and do. I am fully committed, and I don't care what the crowd says, thinks, or does. It's different. And I think it's interesting when we line these two snapshots up side by side and consider them together, I I would say this, that when the crowd is singing the glories of Jesus, then join in. Shout his praises. Shout Hosanna to the king for sure. There is no, there is no, um, nothing wrong about being a voice in the crowd when the crowd is singing the glories of God. But don't neglect your solo. Don't neglect your opportunity to, in, in your life, in your job, in your home, to step out of the crowd and say and sing and declare with your thoughts and words and actions that Jesus is important to me, not just to us. That he matters to me, not just us. That Jesus is my Savior, not just somebody I sing about on Sunday. Don't withhold your alabaster worship, because God has opportunities for every single one of you. He positions you in places to stand out, to stand up, to take a stand for Jesus in alabaster worship. Some of you are going to do that here in the next couple of weeks when we do baptisms on April 10th. You're going to take a stand. We see people doing that all the time. That's one person out of many saying, for me, I'm going to choose Jesus. Remainder of our time, we're going to focus on the snapshot of Mary and her alabaster worship. I want you to consider three things. As you think about and as you prepare yourself for this divine solo that God wants you to sing, as you prepare yourself for that, I want you to think of three things. Number one is this. Critics always have an agenda. Critics always have an agenda. Let's consider this snapshot again. Mary, who is expressing this radical and extravagant love to Jesus, she lays down her glory and her honor. She humbles herself to love on Jesus, to show him affection, and to show him gratitude. And what happens? She's criticized for her actions. When you step away from the safety of the crowd to honor God and love Jesus, 
When you embrace that, that moment where God wants you to go solo, expect criticism. It's going to happen. Someone is going to see it, and someone isn't going to like what you're doing. Let's look at this again. Matthew chapter 26, verse 8. And when the disciples saw it, what she was doing, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Look at how very thoughtful and pious these disciples are being, right? They're very spiritual, right? Thinking of others before themselves and thinking of the least of these, you know? And, and it sounds very spiritual, like, oh man, they, they have a point here. Look at, but let's look a little bit further. John chapter 12, verse 5, tells a little bit more of the story. It says this, but Judas Iscariot, you guys know who Judas is, right? Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray Jesus, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Um, first of all, it, it wasn't his alabaster box. It was Mary's. It was her perfume. They had no right to it. They had no right to tell her what to do with it. It was hers. She could do whatever she wanted with it. Secondly, it's, it's revealed in verse 6 that Judas said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Judas, amongst the disciples, was basically the treasurer. He had charge of the money bag. He handled the money. And he was a thief and a rotten guy. Those two things don't mix well at all. And so Judas's criticism of Mary and this offering had an agenda. Criticism always has an agenda. In this case, it was, I'm not going to be able to get my hands on the money that you just wasted on Jesus. Imagine saying that out loud. You just wasted all of that on Jesus, right? Judas is saying, I'm not going to be able to get my hands on that. And so it seems that as we kind of put these together, that probably Judas was the one who started the criticism and the other disciples um, joined in because they, Judas had a point. Yeah, I mean, we could have done that. That's really expensive. Why did we waste it on Jesus? And so Judas starts it. The others chime in because the criticism sounded spiritual. Uh, by the way, whenever you begin to take a stand for Jesus, whenever you stand out and stand up and, and make bold individual moves for Jesus, expect criticism and expect it to sound spiritual. People are going to criticize you, and they're going to come at you from a way that sounds real pious, that sounds real spiritual, that sounds real godly, but the reality is what they're saying to you is you are wasting your efforts, your energy, your time, your thoughts, and your dedication. You're wasting it on Jesus. That's what criticism is. These guys thought surely Jesus would agree with them. They would, surely Jesus would agree with the thought that, that um, they should have given this to the poor. <clears throat> I don't know where you are in your situation. Perhaps you're being criticized because a vocal minority has started chatting about you. Maybe there's nobody else in the crowd with the guts to speak up. Perhaps you're being criticized because someone thinks that if they put you down, they can solidify a, a secondary relationship, maybe with your boss or somebody else. Perhaps you're being criticized because your strength and courage for God exposes somebody else's fear and lack of faith. Critics always have an agenda. They rarely care about your heart, your intentions, your motives, or your spirit. 
Critics refuse to celebrate anyone else, and critics always hold others to a standard that they themselves refuse to live by. That's the identifier of a critic. And in this story, I didn't see any of the other disciples willing to give a year's wage to help the poor. Did you? But what they're saying is, you should have done that. None of them are offering to do it themselves. None of them thought, well, you know what? She is operating in so much generosity. I want to take my money. I want to take my gift, and I want to sell it and give it to the poor. No, they're not doing that. They're criticizing somebody who is loving on Jesus. And I want you to see how Mary responds to the criticism. I want you to see how she defends herself and justifies her actions. You can search all through Scripture. You're not going to find that verse because she doesn't. She doesn't defend herself. She doesn't justify her actions. She doesn't, uh, let me just tell you my heart behind this and why I'm going to do this. She doesn't say any of that. She doesn't even respond. She was so focused on Jesus that she either didn't hear the critics or she didn't care. Either way, the critics had no power over her. When you begin to step out and stand up for Jesus, when you begin to prepare for your solo, know that there will be critics. And no matter how amazing you are, no matter how good your intentions are, no matter how awesome it goes to glorify Jesus, you will never silence the critics. It will never happen. You'll never silence them. But when you give your all to Jesus, when you focus on him in intimacy and proximity and nearness to him, you will either stop hearing the critics because you're so close to Jesus or stop caring about them. Look, I know that us as believers and many of you, you're dealing with criticism from time to time and I know we want to ignore it and I know we want to be so close to Jesus that we don't hear it and I know all of that stuff, but it's really hard when we experience criticism, right? Like, it's really hard to not let that stuff affect us. Like, we want to be close to Jesus. We want to be near him. And we want to have that kind of relationship with Jesus. But we know that we're not there yet for many of us. And we have to keep going. But God is going to call us to stand up and stand out as individuals and say, you know what, I don't care what anybody else says, thinks, or does. I am going to express my love and affections towards Jesus. I'm going to do it with the way I act. I'm going to do it with the words that I speak. I'm going to do it with my kindness, my generosity towards people. I'm going to do it with how I live as an individual on a daily basis. Second thing that I want you to consider is this. <clears throat> Jesus recognized public worship, but he rewards private. He recognized public worship, but he rewards private in these two stories. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he recognized the crowds, he responded, he saw them, he acknowledged what was happening, but it's in this private and intimate moment of worship when Mary steps out from the crowd, when she comes in all by herself and she worships Jesus in this private way, Jesus rewards her. When the disciples started criticizing, it wasn't Mary, but Jesus who defended her actions. Think about that. That the one who was present in the very beginning and who was there speaking life and creation into existence when everything was just nothing and then Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit created everything. It was Jesus who spoke to the disciples and said, knock it off, leave her alone. It was Jesus who defended it was Jesus who was saying, look, she's anointing and preparing me for my burial and, you know, essentially resurrection. 
As if he's saying, apparently she is the only one who's been listening to anything that I've been saying over these last three years. Leave her alone. In fact, for all of eternity, not just eternity here on this earth, but for all of eternity, as long as the gospel is preached, as long as we talk about Jesus, and as believers, when we die or are raptured and end up in heaven, we're going to talk about Jesus forever and ever and ever. As long as Jesus is talked about, this woman's story, this moment, her actions, her worship, and her intimacy, this will be talked about forever, Jesus says, in memory of her. They're going to talk about this story in memory of her. Oh, and by the way, since we're going to talk about her response in this moment, we're probably also going to talk about yours. Bummer for you, right? Jesus is a rewarder. Isolated in private worship is always authentic, and God rewards that. And I know there's probably a pious, critical part of this crowd that says, I don't think we ought to be doing this for the rewards. It's not about that, and it's not. That's not why we worship. I get that. I know. But if God is rewarding, and I know he's given us more than we could ever think to, to, to give back. I know he's given us more than we could ever repay, and I get all of that. I know that we're on the receiving end of grace and mercy and salvation. I get all that, but if God is rewarding, why are you not trying to position yourself to be a recipient of those rewards? Isn't that kind of dumb to say, no, it's not about the rewards. God's rewarding. Ah, I don't want to part of any of that. Why? What? I mean, that's stupid. Or maybe you think that there's nothing that God can give you that you need. Maybe you think that God rewards with trinkets. But God is a rewarder. And if you think that there's nothing that God can give you that you don't already have, then you've elevated yourself above God. You say, I have no need for him, and you need to repent. But God is a rewarder. We see several um, uh, proofs of this. Matthew chapter 6, verse 4. Jesus was talking about giving. And so Jesus says, So your giving may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He goes on to say in verse 6, And Jesus was talking about prayer, and pray to our Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. If the only time that you're praying is around the dinner table with your family or here at church and you're not praying to God in private anywhere, then you're missing it because he is a rewarder for those who seek him. He says it again in, in verse 18 when he's talking about fasting and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Well, I don't do it for the rewards. Well, fine, but God said that he's going to reward and so, hey, I'll take it, right? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says, And without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever, who, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Praise God, right? He is a rewarder. Man, that is good news. If you are a believer and you're in a funk right now, and you're just like, oh man, nothing's working out, woe is me. Listen, God is a rewarder. So seek him, pursue him, be aggressive in your praise, your worship, and your dedication to him because he promises that he will reward. 
Alabaster worship will move you away from the crowd. And listen, it's not about singing. It's not about lifting your voice. It's about you and Jesus. Mary didn't sing, right? It's about you and Jesus. What are you? Not your church, not your life group, not your family. What are you doing to draw near to Jesus? What are you doing to honor Jesus? What are you as an individual doing to make much of Jesus? When you find the courage to step out and step up all by yourself, Jesus promises when you take that stage for him, he's going to hit that button. His chair is going to spin. He's going to give you this gigantic smile. He's going to clap for you. He's going to say, yes, yes. I want you on my team. You're standing up. You're standing out. You're choosing me. Jesus is going to say, I choose you. I want you on my team. Some of you don't know if Jesus has really chosen you because you've never really done anything to choose him on your own. You hide in the shadows in the crowd for fear of rejection, convinced that if you step out on the stage, Jesus is going to say, nope, not good enough. Nope, I don't want that on my team. Nope, I'm not interested in you, but I promise you, you stand out, you step up for Jesus, you say, I love him, I choose him, I'm all about him. He is going to hit that button. He's going to say, I want you on my team. I want you a part of my family. I want you to be identified with me. I want us to do this together. And then he rewards you by giving you access to him and his Holy Spirit. He rewards you with salvation. He rewards you with joy unspeakable. He rewards you with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He says, I choose you and I'm going to reward you. And this is good. It is so good to be chosen by him. Last thing. When you stand alone, you aren't. When you stand alone, you aren't. Worship team, please come. When Mary poured the perfume on her Messiah, she may have felt all alone in the midst of the criticism, but she wasn't alone. I love the story in 1 Kings chapter 19 with the prophet Elijah. He felt isolated and alone. He'd stepped out for God in an amazing way. He'd called down fire from heaven, and, and, or he prayed a prayer, and, and God responded with fire from heaven, consumed an altar that he had built. Queen Jezebel got angry with Elijah and, and declared that she was going to kill him. Elijah was scared. He was alone. And he's kind of complaining, doing a, doing a complaining prayer to God in verse 10 there. He says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And he says, and I, even I only, Elijah declares, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He says, I'm the only one left. It's just me. I'm all alone. But he wasn't. And in that moment where Mary fell at Jesus' feet, I wonder if there was a, uh, that voice, the voice of the enemy saying, Mary, you're all alone, but she knew she wasn't. God reminds Elijah of his power, his might, his awesomeness, and his intimacy, and he reminds him also in verse 18, he says, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. He says this, Elijah, even if you are alone, I am awesome. I'm a big deal. Like, I control everything. So even if you are alone, you're not, but you're not alone. Reminded of a movie that we just watched a while back with the kids, Chronicles of Narnia. 
and Prince Caspian. And the Chronicles of Narnia were written by C.S. Lewis. And he's an amazing theologian. You want a book that's really just going to rattle your brain about God, read Mere Christianity. It's deep, it's heavy, it's awesome. Um, but he wrote these children's books as sort of an analogy of God and a better way for kids to understand God. And the character in these books, it's, it's, it's set in Narnia. And, and Aslan is a lion, a gigantic lion. And Aslan represents God in this Chronicles of Narnia. And at the end of this movie, Prince Caspian, um, there's a scene where there's a battle between the Narnians, the good guys, and the Telemarines, the bad guys, and they're fighting, and, and you know how the battles kind of go back and forth, and the, the Narnians start winning, and they're chasing the Telemarines, and they say, if we get across the river, if we get across the bridge, then we can turn and we can win the war on the other side of the bridge, and as they're running, this entire army is running to cross the bridge, um, they stop as, about, as the captain makes it about halfway across the bridge, and he looks across the other side, and he sees this little girl walking across the bridge and um, as this massive army sort of stops and looks at her, she reaches into her cloak and she pulls out a tiny little knife. There's no fear, there's no retreat in her, it's just sort of nonchalant. She pulls out this knife as this battle is approaching. She's standing there all alone. A moment later, the great lion, Aslan, in this story representing God, walks up casually and stands beside her. See, Lucy knew that she wasn't alone. She knew that God was coming. She knew that God was there. And as the, as the enemies began to, to approach and they make their way closer to Lucy, Aslan roars. And it's this massive, earth-shaking roar that just, that just rattled the entire countryside. And this is something that we all need to know this morning. Look, when you stand alone, you aren't. Because the lion of the tribe of Judah is in you. He's around you, he's beside you. And when you stand alone, you know you're not alone because the great line of Jesus comes and he promises that no weapon formed against you shall prosper. It doesn't mean you won't ever hurt. It just means that you won't ever lose in eternity because the lion is there. There's no enemy that you have to fear. There's no criticism that you have to bend to. There's no exit strategy that you have to plan because even when you stand alone, you aren't. Stand your feet all across this place. We're going to close in a very simple way this morning. We just got a couple of minutes, but I, I believe that this is sort of how the Holy Spirit has directed us. There's a song, this song that we're going to sing, is a, it's an old song, many of you will know it. It's, um, it's a song in our home that we sing often when we just need the nearness and the intimacy of Jesus, when we're holding a crying baby or cuddling with a sick child, this is the song that we sing over them all the time. Just because for us in our home, it's just, it's just a way for us as individuals to connect with Jesus. And so Pastor Dan's gonna begin to sing this. And what we're gonna do, I'm gonna ask you guys to close your eyes and to bow your heads all across this place. I'm not gonna make this big, specific call this morning. 
There's some of you in here that need Jesus. You need to begin a relationship with Jesus this morning. But if you just allow him to speak to you as an individual, if you approach him as an individual, the Holy Spirit loves you so much that if you choose him, he will choose you. And he'll lead you through that. And if you need some, somebody to talk to after we're done, you come talk to us and we'll pray through that with you. But we're just going to close by taking a moment, each of us individually, and just loving on him by ourselves. And if you want to sing this song with us, sing this song with us. If you want to find a place to pray, if you want to come down here and you want to just love on Jesus, you want to stand out and you want to stand up, you want to say, Jesus, I choose you. No matter what happens, I don't care about anybody else. I choose you this morning. This morning, we're not going to ask our altar team to come because I believe that the Holy Spirit wants to meet you in an individual way, on an individual basis this morning. And so we're going to take two more minutes. And we're just going to sing this song. If you want to sing, let's just do this. If you're comfortable, raise your hands all across this place. And we're just going to love on him as individuals this morning. Say, what if people are looking at me, raising my hands? It feels weird for me to Look, it's you and Jesus this morning. It's just you and him. And if you want to come down and you want to find a place to pray, you come and you find a place to pray because it's you and him this morning. And if you learn to love, serve, and worship him as an individual, there will be nothing that this church cannot do for the kingdom of God corporately. Let's do that this morning. Let's just love on him. Sing this. Jesus, Jesus, let all heaven and earth proclaim. I choose you. I choose you. I thank you for being my God. 
I thank you for being my Savior. I thank you for being my King. Jesus, fill us up as individuals. Let us have the courage to stand up and stand out for you. Let us have the courage to take bold steps for you. Lord Jesus, let us have the courage to live individual, committed lives to you and then have the opportunity to be a part of a powerful force in the church. Jesus, I love you. I thank you. I worship you. I adore you. Thank you for what you've done for me. Before we go, if there is anybody, as, as we dismiss, if there is anybody that feels like they do need prayer, you have a need, physical, emotional, anything like that, you have a need, our prayer team is here, and they will pray for you. Go this week, and do not neglect your opportunity to offer alabaster worship in any moment that you can. Love on Jesus this week, no matter what anybody else is doing. You love on Jesus as an individual. We love you guys. Thank you. We'll see you tonight for the pie auction. Jesus, Jesus, there's just something about that.